Thank you, choir. Thank you, orchestra. There's such beautiful music for the resurrection for Easter. Because it is a celebration because of what Jesus did. He predicted it. He told everyone what would happen, but no one really expected it. And it came as a surprise to his disciples. It came as a shock to his followers when he presented himself and showed them the wounds they believed. One wasn't there when he showed himself to the first disciples, though. His name was Thomas. When you hear the name Thomas, what do you think of? The Doubting Thomas. That's his, his nickname. The sermon is entitled, Thomas Doubting to Believe, and it's the passage in John 20, verses 24 through 29. We've been looking at the apostles in recent weeks. Last week, Palm Sunday, we looked at Judas. And this morning, I thought, what more appropriate disciple than Thomas, who was known for doubting, but who worked through his doubt and came to believe. I don't know where you are in your Christian life right now. Maybe you're struggling with your faith. Maybe this whole idea of, of the resurrection of someone from the dead is difficult for you to grasp. But I want us to look at Thomas and how through doubt he came to faith in Jesus Christ. John 20, verse 24 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. Eight days later, which was a week later because the Jews count the first day and the last. Eight days later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were shut, but Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That is the beatitude for you and me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Let's bow together. Father, as we come this Easter Sunday to remember the resurrection and to celebrate that singular event in history that divided time into that all the world has taken notice of, although some are yet faithless. Help us, Lord, with our own faith. Help us in the midst of doubt, not to give up and walk away and throw in the towel, but to continue to think and study and pray, find fellowship with other believers, and to work through that doubt and come to a faith that is our own, that is genuine and deep. Tried and tested and true. We thank you for Thomas, who gives us a model for doubting and still believing. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we've been looking at the 12 
first followers of Jesus. And ever since this passage in our scripture this morning, Thomas, the one we're looking at today, has been called the Doubting Thomas. I distinctly remember as a child, seven, eight years old perhaps, my mom coming in and having a conversation with my father. We had some neighbors that were members of another faith. And apparently mom had been talking to them and and talking about our faith to them and they with her. And she came in and was telling my father, she said, they said we were the Doubting Thomases. And I overheard that. And I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it didn't sound good. I knew it didn't sound encouraging or an affirmation of any kind. But I want you to know this morning, if you'll follow along in the outline, that doubt doesn't always have to be a bad thing. You don't have to be afraid of it. I think people who have an honest faith in Jesus Christ will confess that there have been times in their lives when they weren't too sure about this whole thing, faith in Jesus, that weren't too sure about this thing called the resurrection, someone actually coming back from the dead. It just sounds so impossible, so too wonderful to believe that such a thing could actually have happened. But I believe doubt can be a good thing if you don't just linger in it, if you don't wallow in it indefinitely, but if you continue to work through it, if you have fellowship with other believers in Christ, if you spend time in the Word and and actually look for answers in the Bible, there are answers for every kind of question that you might have. If you spend time with God in prayer, I am an ardent, have ardent faith that you can come through your doubt with a faith that is even stronger and deeper because you have worked through it. Thomas We don't know a whole lot about him. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all that we know is that he's listed among the 12 apostles. We know that Thomas in Hebrew simply means twin. He's also called Didymus in the Greek, and that also means twin. So we don't know what his proper name is. Everybody in the early church just referred to him as the twin. We don't know who his twin was. That would be good to know. But what we know about Thomas comes from the Gospel of John. Because there are several episodes in John's gospel where Thomas asks a question. And in the answering of it, we see his faith deepened. That's a model for us. The first time Thomas is mentioned personally comes in John 11, verse 16. In John 11, Jesus receives word that Lazarus, his friend, has fallen ill. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus because Jesus is a close personal friend of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. As a matter of fact, they live in Bethany, which is just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And every time Jesus goes into Jerusalem or leaves Jerusalem, he usually spends some time in Bethany in the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They always have room for him. They always have a meal for him. There's always a closeness in that relationship. So Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus whom Jesus loved, has fallen ill. And Mary and Martha expect Jesus to come immediately and tend to Lazarus. But it says an interesting word in verse 6. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's odd, isn't it? He heard his friend was sick, so he stayed two days longer where he was. Why did Jesus do that? Because he knew that by raising Lazarus from the dead would be a greater work 
than simply healing him from a sickness. And Jesus wanted to glorify his father by doing that. Well, word two days later comes to Jesus that Lazarus has indeed died. And uh, Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for, for dying, but I will go and awake him out of sleep. The apostles don't want Jesus to do that because as I said, Bethany is on the outskirts of Jerusalem and the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, the religious leaders wanted to stone him. Jesus had to, had to leave Jerusalem quietly to keep from being killed prematurely. And so when he says, I'm going back to, to Bethany, the first thing the disciples say, don't do it, Jesus. Aren't you afraid of what might happen to you? But it's Thomas who says, let us also go that we may die with him in verse 16 of John 11. So what Thomas is saying, let's go to Bethany. If Jesus dies, we will die with him. Now it might not sound very optimistic, but it's certainly not doubting. Thomas was ready to go and die with Jesus in Bethany. The second time we read about Thomas is right after the Last Supper in the upper room. In John 13, remember Jesus has instituted the Last Supper. He's told them what this, this bread is, represents his body. This cup represents his blood that was shed. And then he pulls a towel and he washes the feet of his apostles and gives them an example in servanthood. When we come to John 14, Jesus is trying to prepare his followers for what's about to happen. This is the night that he goes to the garden of Gethsemane and he prays and he's arrested and Jesus is anticipating all this. And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And Jesus goes on to say, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And it's Thomas who says, Thomas, who says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? I don't think Thomas was asking a question that the other 11 didn't have, or the other 10 at that point didn't have. But he was just the only one brave enough to voice it. He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And because Thomas asked that question, Jesus was able to give the answer in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So Thomas, once again, not doubting, but just wanting to know more. He was curious. He was bold in his questioning of Jesus. The third event of Thomas that we have is the passage in scripture that we have today. Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning and he began appearing to his followers. He appeared to the ladies who came to the tomb to anoint his body for burial, not knowing that he had already been raised from the dead. And then he began appearing to his other followers and that evening he comes to the upper room where four days earlier, Thursday evening, he had observed the Last Supper and his disciples were gathered there and he says, peace be with you. And they see the wounds, they see their Lord and they see everything and they believe. 
But Thomas wasn't there. For some reason, the 10 apostles had gathered in the upper room by themselves and Thomas was somewhere else. And, and I don't fault him for that. People grieve in different ways. Sometimes when you're really sad, you just want to go off and, and be alone. You want to be by yourself. But because Thomas was not with the other 10, he missed that first appearance of Jesus as the risen Lord. And this is the encounter where Thomas gets his nickname, the Doubting Thomas. Jesus comes to the ten, he appears to them, he even eats, in one gospel it says he eats a piece of fish with them to prove to them that he was alive. He had been dead and he had been raised to life. Thomas doubted. He wasn't asking for anything the other 10 hadn't received. He just said, because I wasn't with you, I want to see his wounds. I want to see him too. So I might believe like you did. Doubting doesn't have to be a bad thing, friends. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. As I said, doubting is dangerous only if it goes on indefinitely. Only if you prolong it. Maybe as a young person, you lost someone dear to you, a parent, a grandparent, a friend. And you wondered why God did not intervene. If he was powerful, if he was loving, why did he let this happen? Maybe something bad happened to you. God, why did this happen to me? And you began to doubt. Listen, I don't know any mature Christian, any strong Christian that has not gone through some period of doubt in their life, some, some time of wondering, some dark night of the soul when they were asking, where is God? Why is the God I believe in silent when I need him most? Maybe you went off to college. That's where a lot of young people really struggle with their faith. You're exposed to folks like Karl Marx who wrote that religion is an opiate of the masses. You learn that Sigmund Freud said that God is an illusion of human origin. Or maybe you're sitting in a play and someone has a line in that play and it says something like, religion is a chloroform mask into which the frightened and weak stick their faces to avoid reality. You hear that all the time on college campuses. Religion is a chloroform mask in which the weak and frightened stick their faces in order to avoid reality. There are philosophy professors on every college campus. I've seen them on colleges. I've taught in universities alongside them. And they take great delight in challenging the faith of, of incoming freshmen coming from their home church and, and really challenging them and asking them, saying things like, religion is just a crutch for weak people. Religion just fulfills a wish. It just satisfies a need. So... Young college students impressed with these smart people and their smart writings come home from college and announce to their family and friends that they have become an atheist. <laughs> it happens often. And if this is where you are, if you are doubting today who Jesus is, who he said he was, and whether or not he was actually raised from the dead as he predicted he would, and as we celebrate today, let me ask you some questions just to get you thinking. Reasons for believing. First of all, does the story of Jesus really look like the creation of someone who was weak and fearful? 
Read the Gospel of Mark. It's only 16 chapters. It only takes about 45 minutes. And ask yourself, would a weak person actually compose the story of a God who became a suffering servant? Would a fearful person conjure up a story where the founder is crucified? That does not sound like somebody who was fearful. It does not sound like an opiate for the masses to me. Secondly, let me give you a case in point. Saul is on his way to Damascus. He has all the resources of all the religious leaders of Judaism behind him. Saul has been taught his entire life that Christianity is a heresy and must be stamped out. And Saul is on his way to Damascus to do just that and to persecute every follower of Jesus he can find. What Paul discovers on the way to Damascus is the exact opposite of everything he had been taught, everything he believed, everything he expected. And Paul had to come to terms with the fact that if this story of Jesus was actually true, then it would mean that his lifelong enemies were correct and everything he had been taught and everything he had believed was wrong. Does that sound like someone who made up a story of Jesus because he was weak and needed a crutch to lean on? Let me ask you this personally. If you were, either you or you get a group of people together and you say, let's make up our own religion. Let's compose a faith. Would your religion be one of self-help or one of self-sacrifice? I tell you, there have been hundreds of religions that have been composed in the intervening millennia since Jesus walked on the face of the earth. And every one of those religions are all about making yourself better, about imagining a better world and then seeing it come to pass. That's the kind of religion that someone weak and needy would, would conjure up in their own minds. Not so much about denying yourself and taking up a cross. Not so much about following a leader who taught servanthood as the means to leadership. In other words, the core beliefs of the Christian faith are polar opposite to what a weak and selfish person would create. And, and yet that's what folks say Christianity is. It's something that weak and needy people have composed because they needed a crutch to lean on. How many religious leaders, how many religions have a founder whose leader was crucified? This is not just wishful fantasy. This is not just something that someone made up because they needed an opiate for the masses. They needed a chloroform mask to keep from facing reality. Christianity is the exact opposite of what someone would make up. It has to be true. And so Thomas, when he heard the witness of the ten... He remained with them an entire week. And I wonder how he went through that week. The ten were saying, Thomas, we're telling you what we saw. We saw his wounds. We saw his side. Thomas, believe. Believe. And then the following Sunday, it says they were gathered together again with the door shut. And Jesus appeared before them and said, peace be with you. 
And then looking at Thomas, he said, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not be faithless, Thomas, but believing. And, and Thomas didn't have to do that. He didn't reach out and touch Jesus. He didn't put his finger in his wounds or his hand in his side. He simply fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus then pronounced a beatitude because the time for Jesus living on earth was coming to a close. And he said, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Jesus wasn't shaming Thomas for his lack of faith, but he was preparing his followers for that time when he could no longer be understood or apprehended by our five senses. It was going to require a sixth sense, the sense of faith. Jesus said, from now on, you're going to have to believe Thomas, and you won't be able to apprehend me. You won't be able to perceive me with just the five senses. It's going to take faith in order to see. Usually, seeing is believing. But from now on, Jesus is saying believing is seeing. And no matter how long I stand in front of you today and give you reason after reason why the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, why the evidence of it is overwhelming, there will still be that element of faith that will be required in order for you to believe. That's the way God intended it. He said without faith, it's impossible to please him. And so there will, it will take faith, but if you take that step of faith and believe, yes, Lord, I have doubted, I have wondered, I have questioned but in looking at the Bible and spending time with you and, and seeing the testimony of brothers and sisters, I'm willing to take that step of faith and say, I believe. Then God will come in fullness and reveal himself and he will be with you and he will walk with you and you with him and you will know, you will know that what you believe is true. Blessed are those, it's a beatitude who have not seen. The Greek word for blessed means happy, satisfied, fulfilled. All those who have not seen and yet still believe will be fulfilled because all their questions, all their doubts will be answered. Well, what came of Thomas? Once again, we don't know in Scripture. He is mentioned one more time at the end of John's Gospel where he's fishing and Jesus comes to them on the seashore and they uh, have a campfire and they eat fish together. But the tradition is, whereas the other apostles went westward to spread the faith, Thomas went eastward. He went through Persia and he went as far as southern India. And in southern India today, there is a church that bears his name and there is uh, a group of churches that follow their tradition all the way back to Thomas. And tradition has it that some folks there in southern India weren't happy with the message that Thomas was proclaiming. And they attacked him. And he was martyred with a spear thrust through his side. And the area in which that happened is now called Mount Thomas. There is a mountain in southern India called Mount Thomas because tradition has it is that where, that's where he died.
What I want you to see about Thomas on Easter Sunday is that doubt does not have to be a bad thing. God never condemns doubt even more than he rejects sin. He simply has an answer for it. And in his word and in the fellowship of other believers and in prayer, if you will not give up and throw in the towel and walk away, God will be there and he will reveal himself and the answers to your doubt will be given. Problems arise when we allow our doubt to take over and never work through it. But doubt can become the perfect opportunity for growth. Tennyson said there's more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. And I believe the Bible has the answers to every question, to every doubt, to every uncertainty that you might have. And notice Thomas found his answers not when he isolated himself from the other apostles, but when he spent time with them. So many times when people doubt, they fall away from the church and they isolate themselves and they try to go through it alone. But answers are found in the fellowship of other believers, in Scripture, and in prayer. Thomas shows us how to work through our doubt and come to a point where we can say with him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, have you believed in me because you have seen me, Thomas? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's the beatitude for you and me. Blessed are you if you can believe with the evidence that Jesus has given us. You know, it occurred to me in the early service that if I were to stand up before you today and say, John F. Kennedy, who was assassinated, was actually God and was raised from the dead. What would you say? You say, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. I know where his tomb is. There's a, there's a guard. There are guard. You know, it is protected. He is in a casket. He is still dead. Well, don't you think that if this handful of apostles began announcing that Jesus was alive, that those thousands of Jews who wanted to disprove it, don't you think they would have produced the body? Don't you think they would have done something to refute the testimony of the apostles? There was no evidence to offer to prove that they were mistaken. Jesus was alive. And he is alive. And he's with you this day. Let's worship him, bowing together with me as we pray.